Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, I've been doing a series of episodes on tech um, because I think it poses particular challenges for us as we emerge, if we are emerging from this global crisis. Um, I had episodes with Peter uh, Biergall and then Duncan Laurie about occult technology um, with Wendy Liu on abolishing Silicon Valley. And in this final episode of this mini run, I thought I'd turn the lens a bit and talk about what tech feels like for us, what's the experience of it, particularly uh, the experience of using the internet. This is not my idea. Um, In fact, (laughs) this idea was almost wholly inspired by my friend, the incredible author, cultural critic, and internet historian Joanne McNeil. Joanne's book, Lurking, How a Person Became a User, came out just as the uh, global pandemic quarantine conditions and so forth hit. Um, And it is unlike any book on the internet that you've ever read. So I urge you to go out and get this book. Why is it so different? Because it's not a book of praise or condemnation of social media, uh, entrepreneur, founders, or a journey through startupdom. You know, it has those things in it written small, but the big idea is that it's an exploration of what it's like for us to be on the internet. What were the contours of our experiences when we were using MySpace or Friendster or Hotbot, remember Hotbot? Um, (laughs) Or Google writing and reading blogs, um, and of course, you know, Facebook and Twitter, which we talk about a bit on this episode. What kind of people do we become when we engage with these spaces? What happens in us? Um, you know, what pleasures does it give? And of course, what frustrations? And maybe most challengingly of all, what good comes out of using them? What, why do we keep going back to them? What do we want there? What are we getting out of it? Um, we end up going in all sorts of interesting directions here that don't usually come up when people talk about the internet. We talk about why it's so difficult to remember our experiences of the internet early on. Um, I mean, if you think back, can you remember what those early experiences were like? Maybe some of them, but uh, as you sort of went through these different sites and the ones that you landed on again and again, some of them might have just disappeared into a kind of haze. We talk about uh, the gay people's history of the internet, Um, maybe the difference that I experienced and maybe some other people had experienced, and closeted men on Craigslist and gay.com and manhunt and net meeting and all that. Um, We discuss how we shaped uh, expressions of love through emails, um, through really effulgent, intense letters that we would send to each other and then go meet other people about punk and indie rock networking pre-internet. And we also talk about what's next and why we have to abolish Facebook and not try to replace it with something else that's like Facebook. So we go in all these different directions and we give some hints and some leanings and Joanna, Joanne has a particularly good lens on where to go and what we need uh, from where we are right now. There are uh, some sound glitches on this show. <laughs> There's some background noise. There's uh, some noise of a chair clunking against the wall, but they mostly clear up. Um, so don't worry if you hear it, it doesn't last through the whole episode. Uh, I'm 
only kind of saying this too because it's kind of fun in its way because Joanne has given presentations uh, at Stanford, for instance, on glitches and the way that there is this traversing uh, in a glitch between what we consider IRL, real life, and the internet, which is also a kind of real life and we shouldn't totally separate those things. But the glitch is that weird, disturbing bridge. Anyway, there are some glitches on the show. I think I've significantly uh, made it sound philosophical and intentional, uh, even though there were total mistakes. Like I said, Lurking, How a Person Became a User is, for me, one of the best books on the internet ever written because it's told via the experiences of the user. So you should buy it. And an easy way and a good way to do that is via my show notes on patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. I have a link uh, with every episode to bookshop.org. They're not sponsoring me or anything. Uh, They're a great site because they uh, when you buy stuff from them rather than Amazon, they give money to uh, local indie bookstores and have it shipped from one that's close to your location. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, the show notes for this episode are on there and you can click on the bookshop.org list, um, which lists all the books that are on this episode that are featured on this episode. Also, while you're there, do consider supporting the show. Don't just consider it. Do it. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. You can donate at whatever level feels comfortable for you. I know lots of people are in weird situations financially. Some of you are doing just fine, and some of you are encountering some trouble. But uh, if this show has value for you, if this show is getting you through some of this time, or if you just like it, do consider and then do uh, do <laughs> contribute to the show via patreon.com forward slash Connor Beeb. It's what keeps the show going. And uh, I think that this show has a valuable place in the world. That's why I do it. And I think you, I hope you do too. Um, if you can't uh, spend any more money right now uh, or donate, I totally get it. Uh, that's fine. If you want, go to iTunes and uh give this show a five-star review and uh, write a great review if you feel up to it. The more five-star reviews the show has, the more visible it is. So nothing bad happens if it gets a bad review. So trolling doesn't actually work on iTunes, which is kind of cool. But if you give it five stars and you write a good review, it becomes more visible for uh, users of that site. And of course, subscribe to the show anywhere. But also, patreon.com forward slash Connor Do support the show. That would be awesome if you did that. All right. Uh, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Joanne McNeil. Everybody's against everyone with Connor Beeb, and I am so excited to finally talk about your book with you, Joanne McNeil. Hello. Hi, Connor. Um, so, and the reason why I said finally is Joanne and I have been talking about her book for a long time. It's taken a long time to come out, and yet, since it's out, it could not feel more um, more of the moment, but also like timeless in its own way. So I'm really happy to say it. And I want to say that this book, it feels so necessary to me. I didn't actually know how necessary it was until I read it because 
it does what I would hope a book about the internet does, which is it talks about the experience of using the internet and not in a way that is a condemnation nor just a total celebration, but really about inner experiences. But one of the things that I had a question about, because so much of this is about memory and your early experiences with the internet as well as other people's, I look back on those you know, whether it's first using Hotbot or MySpace or whatever I was using, gay.com or whatever. And I have fuzzy memories of that. So I kept thinking when I was reading this, how does she actually even remember all this stuff? Um, Because it seems like it, the internet itself lends itself to a kind of fuzzy or cloudy memory. That was my experience as well. And there were a lot of attempts at telling a story that have since uh, been reconfigured as fiction and short stories because I just could not remember certain elements. But when I was writing about uh, my first experiences with the internet, the, the, the oldest parts of the book, the, the 90s moment of uh, the web being very new, myself on AOL, I would write as much as I could remember and see see how far I could go. And sometimes it would be revisiting that section many times. And, and you know, the second time I was like, oh, there was this thing. Uh, then, then the third time I go back to the draft, I remember another element. And then sometimes I would have enough of uh, enough of the pieces together that I could find something else. So, like in one of the book, in, in one of the sections of the book, I talk about how I finally looked up the name of an old uh, message board on AOL that I used. And when I looked it up, I saw that it was related to Tank Girl, and everything related <laughs> to Tank Girl had slipped my mind. But I just remembered a few. Kind of- a few other things about it but that was like that's such an enormous omission but but the thing i always remember the thing that could could be the anchor to these experiences was i always remember how i felt i always remembered the sense mm. of being at my computer at 11 p.m on a school night and trying to get those last few um, last few jokes in on the chat room with all of my internet friends who I wouldn't know who they are today. And one thing that I, I kind of hoped about this book is that, you know, possibly people I was connecting with online would, would find out about it and reach out to me. And that hasn't happened yet, but I do hope that does happen because mm-hmm. there were, um, the people were fuzzy. The events were fuzzy because it was all on the screen as well as text. It was like, it's trying to remember a novel that I read when I was 15. It's some very stark things. Um, I can, I can recall uh, very, uh, but the broader, a lot of it is just gone, is, is, is gone and I can't get it back, but I will (laughs) never forget my feelings of like anticipation of, of fun, of, of, uh, of anxiety, of, of wanting to seem cool, all of those kind of things. That's what I, I still have held on to. Yeah. I, I, it's funny because when I just, the episode I just did with Wendy Liu, um, 
I was remembering things when I was talking to her about <laughs> websites and stuff. They all just sort of started lighting up in this way that, oh, it's all like, you know, in some ways, internet-like. It's all in me somewhere, but a lot of it has been lost. One of the things I remembered was um, being in an undergrad and you know, nobody had laptops then. There was a computer lab and I would spend my time on the internet learning HTML and building a GeoCities site. And that site was basically just pictures of guys I thought were hot. So it was like, and at the time it was like Ad-Rock and like <laughs> Maxwell Caulfield and like, and I would write little things about them, like celebrities I thought were hot. And then I made another site, which was, um, again, it was through GeoCities, but it was like a labyrinth where you would just click on a link and it would send you to all kinds of weird things. But I mean, they're all internal to my own site. So like you would click on a link and it would send you to a picture of Mecha Godzilla, and there'd be like 20 different links there that could send you. And it was a never ending labyrinth. And that's all. And nobody ever went on that one. Some people did go on my uh, my hot guys one, but nobody ever went onto this like weird labyrinth. But I also remember that feeling of concentration, of learning, of learning this bizarre new language, and pouring that kind of attention there. And that I don't, I definitely don't have that experience at all <laughs> anymore. So I'm not, you know, I think you must, as I must too, like you experience a sense of loss for that. But also, again, only when you think about it. I mean, you're thinking about it all the time, but even the feeling of loss is, uh, you know, even that is kind of lost and gone itself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I read this quip of yours, which I thought was really great (laughs) in an interview where you said, you know, I always viewed this like nature writing. And I think, you know, for other people, including myself, you know, that might have gone against every instinct I had. <laughs> but when I read your book, I saw what you meant for sure. And it is really like perhaps one of the reasons why we have trouble thinking about the internet as space or some kind of plane or dimension or whatever is because the language that we use to describe it is rather cold. And now we don't. I mean, it's not, it doesn't have its own kind of livingness like a forest or a mountain or whatever, but it does have its own kind of activity. And I think describing that in this nature writing way is really interesting. And it seems like, uh, yeah, just, I've never seen anybody do that before. <laughs> so I really appreciated that. <laughs> and it seems like you must have a different memory of your experiences there to be able to pull that off. Yeah. No, I I think what it comes from is just a desire for respect for these interactions um, where I'm not starting from a place of everything on the internet is less than what it would be in person or as valuable as if it happens in letters or I'm not starting from the position that someone has a very rich internet life um, must be very foolish. Um, these are all, I, I, I noticed a, a lot of reporting about the internet tended to have some, you know, elitist chip on the shoulder. Um, 
And what I wanted to, to do with this book is, is provide that richness, provide the, um, the actual wires that come through people are connected. Um, and there have been so many different types of uh, internet communities too. There have been so many different um, setups for, for interacting from, you know, chat rooms are very different from message boards are very different from social media, even Facebook and Twitter, are very different. Um, and, and the opportunity to, to express, um, express not just the joy, but the frustration was, was very important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and I think, yeah, the, <laughs> that's great. So it's like you become, I mean, sorry to reference the quintessential uh, old white man, but you become a sort of David Attenborough of <laughs> the internet away because you're, you are like, yeah, you are peeking in, I mean, lurking and peeking into these sites, you know, and uh, these different eras and everything. And I love that. Um, I'm thinking also just about memory in general, like from your experience of your own memory of the things that happened and how you were having some blocks and how you worked through it, like you were just talking about, but also, um, you know, what it's done, what the internet itself has done to memory. And obviously, I mean, search engines are probably, and Google in particular, are probably the most obvious place to point to that where, we don't have to struggle with answers anymore. I mean, we, we do have to struggle with answers, but we struggle with them in a different way. Like you were writing, what did you say? Like every, every year there's more of what I don't want where you are typing something in and you have to ask the, or conduct the search in a certain way to get the answer that you want and how that's just a completely different process than the inner process of trying to remember or recall something and also really failing. Like there's a sense that you will eventually not fail if you keep looking in the search, but for ourselves, we might actually not remember the name of an actor in a a movie, or we might um, not know the name of a place that we want to go to or you know, remember when it's opening hours are or whatever. And I'm just kind of wondering about that. Like I thought about that a lot. Is there, is that a worse kind of memory actually? Um, is are we, is memory itself being really degraded? Could we have progressed with, you know, different forms of memory? Like you remember, right? I forget how long ago it was, but there was this uh, book that came out called, I don't know if it was like mansions of the mind or whatever, or moonwalking. Do you know what I'm talking about? And it had like, it was all about like these huge, like uh, memory experiments that people would do to get them to remember all sorts of things that would otherwise seem impossible. And now it seems like that skill has been rendered like, you know, while we have calculators. So why the fuck do we need math? You know? Um, And so I I don't know if you had thought about that when you were going through, are we damaging memory? Are we changing it? That sort of thing. Well, I think uh, the thing about memory is that none of these tech companies are designed to, to um, respect or enhance or uh, be beneficial to the user with regard to anything, but especially memory. So if you, 
history of, of, of um, internet services from, from the beginning, you know, I think of uh, CompuServe that early on, they not really want on their message boards and chat rooms. They, they want people to, to be selling stuff and things like that, but, but especially social media providers, they see that people really, really want to connect with each other. And even Google, people see, they can see that users really want to connect with information. But they're not doing this in a way that is the most ideal possible way for you to connect with someone. Like Twitter is not designed to be the most ideal way for an individual to connect with another individual. And Google is now designed for, to be the most ideal way for an individual to connect with information. Um, it has its own, um, it has its own ideas of efficiency, how to make money, all of these kind of things. Um, so the, the, the issue with memory, um, it, it's, it's almost, it, I don't, I don't really tackle it head on in the text, but, but it's something that just by nature of this being a, a book with elements of memoir, that memory is something that was always in the back of my mind. Um, it, it, it's, it's interesting because even though we, we are creating these archives now with, you know, whether it's Instagram or Twitter and some people choose to delete their archives, but we have the option of leaving a trace of our activity that doesn't necessarily mean a user has a stronger um, memory of their experiences on these platforms either. Cause I know I've, I've dug deep into my Twitter archive at some point and, and really looked at a tweet and wondered what on earth it, it <laughs> was happening there. You know what I mean? And it's just, and it might've been responding to somebody else and it might've been, but, but just that, that, the, the nature of these encounters too, that they're so fleeting that if you're on Twitter, you might come up with a, a joke just at the second that, it, uh, just in a second have something to say and never think about it again. Um, that That's pretty common on social media. But, and then when you look back at the earlier versions of online community, early platforms where your data is no longer available, um, online services where you were probably anonymous, no images shared, just absolutely just text exchanges. Um, those, those areas are, are very difficult to remember. But one thing I, I have to say is, is something that brought me back again to the emotions of the internet. I would go digging into Usenet archives on Google Groups, and I would look for just genuine conversations from maybe 1994, 1995. And I was always struck by the openness, this kind of, you know, sometimes people were trolls and some people were, you know, annoying, but there were, there, once in a while I'd come post that was just so, um, so thoughtful and Perhaps this person doesn't think of themselves as a writer. Perhaps this person is just genuinely interested in the subject of this group. Um, but the way that they express, because no one else can really figure out who they are, the, the text that might be about 800 words, like there's so much that came through in 
those exchanges and, and look me look almost 30 years later, um, how I could still have that sense of, of joy reading it and wishing that responded, wishing I could be part of that community mm. happening in 94, happening, wishing I could jump in now. Um, that's another element of this where you, you, the internet kind of distorts our sense of time that you can, because these archives exist, because all of these posts are still, some of them, not all of them, some of them are still available. You can look back at it and want to join in because it looks like something that's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you and I had a conversation, uh, I think a, a few years ago now about um, the kind of weird memory hole of things just before the internet as well. So there's that kind of memory and, and obviously like the internet and the, the information superhighway, which I love that you're like, look, this is actually accurate, even if it sounds completely like out, outmoded, but like before that exploded, I mean, it was obviously still there, but I was thinking about all the bands that became kind of mega popular right before that and how they're all sort of forgotten. It was like, there is this kind of wall between them and like the closer you got to that wall that was, like the mainstreaming of the internet, the, the popularization of the web, like even though you were closer to it, the proximity actually made you disappear in a weird way. And I don't know if you have any explanation for that, but I can go through the bands in my head that like just before that moment, you know, uh, were getting really popular. And then it was like, what the fuck happened? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that conversation too because I think we were talking about a specific musician who we both loved, um, and now he's work. And I just googled him, and he's working as an electrician. And I'm sure he has a pretty nice life. And you know, who was it again? Are we, can we say? I don't want to say because I feel like I, I don't want to, but. I don't. I feel like it, I owe it to this person to respect his privacy and tell okay, okay. Like, well, I'll tell you at the end. But um, it, it was one of those things where I realized because his success as a musician happened a lot before um, blog, definitely before blogging, a lot before internet media. Um, most of the press about his band would have taken place in alt weeklies that were not digitized or um very zines and and you know just the 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 press that that band uh, had generated just is is not available today which is very different from even like a very very tiny micro celebrity person nowadays who can whip up a press um a press package for themselves just very easily depend you can't up, like there are certain media uh outlets that are considered mm. much more prestigious or or will generate a lot more attention than others but just this idea that you could have all the success and um see it just and not and not see it nowadays it, it's really interesting and it, it is and it's also interesting in the case of musicians and musicians at that moment um that that 90s internet that 90s pre-internet um or, or pre um social media moment 
where a lot of them were from cities around the country. They weren't, um, they weren't rich. They didn't go to elite schools necessarily. It was a way to enter culture without having the kind of um, family connections and alumni networks that ordinarily, at least nowadays, you, you really do need. Yeah, yeah, I think, and so we're seeing sort of a resurrection of some of those bands through documentaries, like there was the Brainiac documentary that just came out recently, and I was just thinking, you know, one of the reasons why people don't know who this band is, well, part of it is because the singer died in a car accident just before they kind of made it. But on the other hand, it's because of all the things you're talking about, where the support structure and network for finding out about bands became rendered not useless, but people decided not to use it anymore. So for me, it was like, well, of course, I would learn about bands, yeah, from zines or going to shows and seeing the opening act and having no idea what they sounded like or buying a CD and committing to listening to the whole thing and or getting a catalog from InSound or whatever other, you know, place that would send them out. And that was that network. And it's really interesting to me how that kind of networking has been set down. It's still totally possible in a lot of ways. And we wouldn't actually need search engines or anything to resurrect that. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about that was, you know, having more control over what kind of celebrity you had and um, maybe you only wanted to be a band that people in your your town you know maybe it's Providence Rhode Island or it's Ann Arbor it's a college town it's not even a huge city Um, and you have elements of control Um, of course there were um, I mean I mean I don't I don't know a lot about music but I, I certainly know that there, there was a huge conversation about selling out if you did sign with a certain label or not. Um, uh-huh. But that, that, it's just so interesting to me that even 25 years ago, there were these local creative networks. And I, the one thing that, that the internet is not so great at and and something that does frustrate me is the sense that if you do become a writer you're not perhaps you live in one perhaps you do live in in providence rhode island and you're you know maybe 25 years ago you could start writing for an all weekly and get that local connection with with your readers see them out and about same thing with like the great thing of local connections with with social media if you if you're actually seeing people in person with, if you're on a message board and you see people in person, that's, that's a really great experience. But having that local, that, that moment of, of not breaking out immediately, but having different graduations of success. But nowadays, I, the thing with blogs and online media is that someone who wants to be a writer is going straight to central sources. Um, and maybe it's, you know, there are some good things about being able to write that write a piece and see your name on say the Atlantic's website. Uh, but that element of, of growing at your own pace or writing for a certain reader, which, you know, 
the Atlantic certainly doesn't speak for me. <laughs> I mean, um, these all of these um, online media sources that uh, have a real homogenous point of view, um, and that that that's something that I see as a drawback of also the end of blogging and maybe newsletters are, are carving some of that autonomy back, but it's not the same as having a thriving local uh, media, local art scene. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, so I was listening to you on, um, what's the name of the podcast? Tech will not save us. Is that the, and, uh, you was good, but there was this moment where um, the host said something, which I, I was really glad you put in your book, where you recognized that, that the rise of the internet had corresponded to the AIDS crisis. But the conclusion that, oh, well, see, like, like the internet didn't really figure into gay people's lives in the, in, in like a serious way. And you were like, well, I, what I read you as saying was, well, it doesn't, we lost like a lot of people that could have been contributing to it. But for me, and to have this sort of emerge out of, I mean, I love that podcast by the way, so I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> you know, dissing it in any way, but, but for me, the, the thing that, uh, the thing that you were saying of the sort of missing contribution was, you know, not the same as saying that gay people, LGBT people, queer people were not accessing the internet for all sorts of reasons. And for me, that's actually where those kinds of communities started to take place and started to form. You know, when I'm 17 years old and I'm going onto America online for the first time, it was really the first time that I, in small town Pennsylvania, that I was talking to gay men all over the world in these, in these chat rooms. And then, you know, you have this weird, progression to like net meeting and gay.com and manhunt and you know now it's these these apps but for me these smaller gay communities i met my my first boyfriend on one of those um and i also <laughs> met this guy ron who he i mean crazy i was seven 17 or 18 years old yeah i was 18 i think yeah, it must have been 18. And I like flew to Florida. He like paid me to fly to Florida to meet him and like hang out with him. He totally lied. Like there were no photos. I didn't know what he looked like. The whole thing was just fucking crazy and weird. And um, but those spaces of networking and meeting people that were like you were especially important for gay people. Whereas in those other uh, networks I was talking about before, like zines and shows and all that kind of stuff, there was no possibility for the identity or sex, for that matter, to be the centralized uh, point of emphasis where that's why I would go there. That's I would go there because, I mean, I definitely went to shows because I was lonely, but I went to the AOL chat rooms because I was even lonelier than I was at the show, you know, for going to the shows, you know? Well, that's, a, that's an important point is that, well... Some things we do want to keep local, or we want at least some local infrastructure and arts and culture, but some things you do have to travel outside of your place. And if you can't physically go to New York or you can't physically go to a big city that does have a huge queer community, the internet was incredible as a resource for that reason. But another thing I loved about what you just said is, um, I didn't get into it in my book, but uh, the idea of, traveling to see someone that you've just um, <laughs> fallen for over email or 
or AIM and uh, <laughs> like I, the just it, it sounds so wild, but I I did that more than once. Um, <laughs> and it worked out, um, and at the same time that 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 freeing sensation of just having having um, uh, having one person that just is alive to you in, in their writing. And I, and I really strongly believe that mm. a lot of those um, like love letters, love emails that I would send, I think that's where a lot of my writing skills develops in mm. a way, weird way. I never, growing up, I didn't think I was a writer. I had this awful writing teacher who was very mean to me. And I, I remember when I was, I was young, I was really resistant to the idea of calling myself a writer just because I had that very bad high school experience and, but I was always so active on, on the internet. And of course, in, at the time, in, it included very long posts because it was on message boards and emails. That, that, that was when I was, I was most, um, most myself. That was when I had a chance to really express myself most clearly and, and have some thought into what I would post. And I do, writing this book, it became very clear to me that what I was doing was, was sharpening those skills that uh, are learning to write through the internet, learning to write in a way that is very present. And it, I wanted this book to capture that sense of when you're on the internet and you can't stop reading a post, it's like, Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. This, like the jokes that come through that, the weird irony, the kind of the playfulness, the wordplay, all that stuff that, that just, that comes through when you're actually talking to another person. I wanted the reader to feel like I was writing an email to them that was to them and they can now put it down. So that, that was a lot of the craft of this book. And I don't think is uh, parts of the voice of lurking probably will not be present in other books. It was very specific to kind of having the aesthetic and the, um, the voice of the internet as, um, as um, part of the, the 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 voice of the book too. Yeah. So there's so much I want to say about all of that. Um, so yes, I love that you brought up one the travel thing because the demand to meet somebody that you only knew through like the symbol and the writing, and the way that that also demanded that you be a, a sort of best self anonymously, you know? I mean, that's really beautiful. Whereas now, of course, that's not required for various <laughs> reasons. And in fact, you might be on your worst behavior if you're anonymous. But there was that beautiful mystery of like, you know, the first time you meet someone, you say ASL, you know, and <laughs> you, which is also now outdated. But like, um, you would you would just get information from them and you would fall in love with your idea of the information that they gave you. And in some ways, I suppose, you know, this is like a Lacanian thing where you meet people, there is no sexual relationship. You'd say it's like, you are just bringing everything that you are to that other person. And in some ways we could say that it's very honest in that sense. Like it's just kind of laid bare that that's what we do all the time anyway. At some point that turned into um, 
oh, what's going to happen? And there were movies about this. There were all sorts of things about this. Oh, what's going to happen is a young girl is going to go meet an older guy who's lied and, you know, has basically catfished the person. And a lot of the attention, like, I think that seems to be the narrative now of that time was catfishing, but that actually isn't by and large, at least what happened, even if there is danger there. So I don't know if you see historically where that turn was taken. Well, one thing is, it still happens today, but it doesn't happen the same way as it did in the 90s. And it's not, and so Hmm. you have to remember what the internet was like back then, which was much slower. I mean, if you got an email (laughs) several times a week, that's a big deal. (laughs) As opposed to, and how much of yourself you were sharing with the internet that nowadays, if you met someone in like a, a message board um, or Reddit subreddit or something like that, you could, you could have a lot of the same experience of that, that joy of, of meeting someone and, 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 and having them far away and imagining what it'll be like if you meet in person. But like in all likelihood, they probably have an Instagram. They probably have a Twitter page. They probably have a Facebook. They probably are sharing parts of themselves, and and that some ways cuts into what, what we were talking about a little bit of of the, the email based intense conversations. Which, if you think about it, how people oriented these posts were from the beginning. That it's someone who's just like maybe they've made a cup of tea they're sitting at their computer at nine o'clock in the evening and they have their full attention on no more than like three or four different forums and it's just like the amount of of attention that you're giving to these utter strangers already Mm -hmm. is quite generous and then if you meet one that something about their vibes something about the way they post something about their interests just kind of captures something in you and and you start imagining what they they might be like you have some private conversations with them and perhaps you are very forthcoming about things that uh you don't get the chance to tell strangers things about your childhood things about your dreams um that openness and that excitement of of being able to share the side of yourself and then the frenzy of waiting for that email that frenzy of composing an email that you know is very good and it's just flirtatious just enough uh and that experience i i do associate it more with 90s and aughts because even myspace was never so like it it never had that timeline of constant posting was was much much slower so the the thing that that i find most surprising about the time um is how much you could catch of a person. And I, I felt mm-hmm. that, yes, there is a lot of ideal of an idealizing this person who lives elsewhere and is not immediate to you and you don't have to see at their worst. You can just imagine them as their best. Um, that's certainly true. But having had this experience in my, my 20s a, a couple times, I, I am, in retrospect, surprised how much... I did see in them through the letters they sent me um, uh-huh, uh-huh. that because we were so forthcoming about, you know, things that hurt us, things that we really wanted, um, that that's, some t- that's something, if, if you're being honest 
with that, um, you are revealing a lot about yourself. Well, I mean, it's the, it, it echoes psychoanalysis in a way. I mean, they have you lie down on a couch in psychoanalysis for a reason rather than look at the person because the words that come out when you're not looking at somebody's face, like the things that happen are just completely different. You know, even, I mean, just for people that are listening to this episode before Joanne and I had our cameras turned off and now we have them on and I can sense the conversation is actually, the contours of it feel different talking to you while I look at you so I think that's part of it. And yeah, trying to, uh, trying to uh, evince the, 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 all the feelings of intensity and love and, and affection that you might have for somebody through like the symbols of written language is that's tricky. And like pouring yourself into that, you know, and, and you might be over the top when you write the letter, but of course, in some ways you have to be because you're not afforded touch. It makes me interested to actually see maybe the relationships that might have come out of this quarantine period where people have met and they can't, even though they're chatting with each other like this, they can't touch um, and they can't be in the same space together. And so the conversations might have a similar uh, contour to them as those early uh, emails. And then also, I mean, there's a re-enchantment of that right now too, because you have that show Love is Blind, which was a horrible show, but like where the people sat in their different pods and never saw each other and talked to each other and tried to connect, you know, and then like the much worse version of it, the, the island one, whatever the hell that was called, too hot to handle, where like they were all together, but they couldn't have sex with each other, like on this tropical island. I mean, both these shows, their release and proximity to the quarantine were enough to make me think that the whole thing was a giant conspiracy. But (laughs) that was the only time I was like, wow, this is all conspiracy, because why are these shows coming out right now? But there is a kind of re- excitement about having a limit to what you can learn or glean from other people because we filtered into a hyper specificity with the apps that we use that have all the information, the face, and you decide based on all the particularities you have, whereas the openness is what was uh, that the, the the forced kind of openness, you know, um, is what was open is was what was available to us before. And I think that was true with friendships too. It's just it, it is it's interesting to think again of a certain period of my life when I'd be meeting all these people going out for drinks, people in the city who are my friends, and then going on my computer at perhaps later at night, perhaps two in the morning, and then finally feeling like I can open up to these strangers in ways that somehow the in-person connection, you know, I still had to pretend I was this, whatever I was in person. And um, it was, I'm, I'm not sure how we could, recapture that too because right now where the internet is so commodified where it is so busy and not only are we participants on platforms like twitter and facebook but perhaps our jobs require us to be on facebook and twitter um and that is this other level of having to be somebody 
And I, I find it very funny that in the process of writing this book, that's when I um, retreated from social media a lot. Um, I, I'm really not a big tweeter anymore. I don't, I, I'm still on it. I'm still, I'm still talking to my friends, but I don't, I don't participate as much as I did in the past. I'm, I'm definitely not on Facebook. I have people that I email and I have a few kind of quiet, kind of private online communities, but I, I wouldn't necessarily know. Um, I wouldn't necessarily know where to recapture that meeting someone and, and um, having that that intense connection if it were possible in this busy internet that we have now. Yeah, I think, I mean, the more we talk, I, the more I'm thinking that has something to do with the hyper-specificity that is really the problem. You know, in water schools, they will, I mean, not all Waldorf schools do this, but they give kids dolls that have like no faces, like facial features. Because the idea is like the, the, the kid has to learn how to project the kind of face that they want to see into the doll. And it's the same thing if you've read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. He does the, um, like they're the hyper specific, like detailed drawings which seem unsatisfactory, like of characters. And then there's just the like emoji style smiley face, which is also unsatisfactory. It's hitting that weird balance where you get to project just enough in, but, you know, and you're not given everything, but there's some structure there. And I think maybe this like all the particularity of it, which has been hailed for a really long time is one of the great things about the internet where you could find exactly what you want. But the problem is none of us get to then uh, none of us get to experience things that we don't exactly want. This has actually been my big problem with my career, like public career is my, my friend Jed broke it down for me very well a few years ago. Cause I was hanging out with my friend, Caitlin Doty, who's a mortician and she has a huge following for doing that. And my friend, Peter Rollins, who's a theologian, like an atheist theologian. And he has a huge following for that. And my friend Jeb was like, yeah, they'll always have an easier time like marketing because they're saying to people, I, here's this thing that you know that you want and I provide you with it. But what you're doing is saying, you didn't know that you want this, but once you get into it, you really want it. And that actually is something that's very difficult um, without being coercive and just merely manufacturing the need and the desire um, that corporations do to tap into on the internet. I think it all right now um, because it requires people forgetting their uh, attachment to specificity, hyper-specificity. It's something that I noticed with hookup apps, you know, like I wrote an essay about them a long time ago, right when they first, well, maybe a few years after they came out, Grinder and Scruff called Facing the Torsos, which was about um, how people use them essentially as pornography because they're too specific for you to actually like follow the the narrative which they hand you, which is like, well, you'll, you'll find a relationship from these things. Well, sometimes that happens, but most of the time that's spent on those is I look at, I try to find the exact thing that I want so I can be aroused by it, you know? And so, I mean, I'm wondering then like, <laughs> There's got to be a restoration of openness somewhere. I mean, you, in the first 
part of your book, which is about searching, it's, you know, you have this, uh, you have this expression of, uh, looking and searching and going into all these weird, strange directions rather than finding exactly what you want. And in, it's it's not nostalgic for me as I read that. It's actually preferable. I would like that experience again because it's an experience that I really enjoyed, but it no longer seems available, actually. Yeah, the, the what's behind door number two sensation of kind of what is, if I click on this link, what's where am I going to go? Um, and nowadays we probably have had some experiences of clicking on a link and it's a spam site or it's some kind of <laughs> a terrible piece about what the internet's mad about today. And I, so we've had disappointment from clicking on those links, but, uh, yeah, but since it's search and serendipity, I, I felt a little bit of it in I felt a little bit of it through this quarantine because I am spending more time in the computer than I would ordinarily. And there have been a few nights that I can't go out. Um, so it's 11 at night. I'm too kind of too antsy to, to get into a book or watch a movie and I'm on my computer and I'm like, well, nobody is online to chat with. So I'm just dipping in. And I, I've the, one of the things that I have had fun with is, is, uh, clicking on Twitch, I think t like there's mm. a lot of unusual stuff happening on Twitch in a way that feels. I think it, it reminds me a little bit of like public access TV, and it reminds me a little bit of the weird arcane elements of YouTube when it first came out. And so <laughs> there have been I've found a few um, kind of almost like it feels like a midnight screening um, club, and there, there's one Twitch in particular that has it airs a couple of nights a week and they, they play uh random commercials or short films or things from from years ago from you know a lot of foreign material and it's kitschy and it's just it it's really unpredictable and, and stumbling upon something like that and then seeing the chat room beside it because that's that's how the platform's laid out it's really interesting mm. um i i sometimes you know uh, one of the places I, I kind of dip around sometimes is Reddit. I think Reddit is a lot of, it, 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 it's certainly imperfect, but it has a lot of the elements of the way the internet used to be, uh, especially with the elements of anonymity. I, I find myself disappointed with, with Craigslist now because I think there was like a moment of Craigslist <laughs> being incredibly fun to just click through like i want to say it was probably you know maybe 10 years ago you go on craigslist and find found poetry and find uh strange uh, strangely composed listings and i mean there's still some of that um and but i think a big part of it was because you didn't have to go there for a purpose like you would go to Facebook for a purpose. You would go on Google for a purpose. You'd go on Craigslist because you need a job or you need an apartment or you're selling a bike. So you're already there selling this bike. And then you click on maybe, maybe you click on Rants and Raves. You go on Rants and Raves and it's chaos in there. <laughs> <laughs> 
or maybe you go into the personals. I like that the the personals were always so fascinatingly weird because they were so ad hoc and the level of anonymity was so people could um, get very specific or get a little bit weird in their listings. I always found those fascinating. Um, but the actual, that, that was a website like that where you go in for one thing and then you just keep clicking around out of curiosity now because you're, it's designed to keep you on the site and it's designed to keep you fascinated and, and angry or whatever. It's just because your own innate sense of curiosity is like, huh, uh, what's, if I click on this, what am I going to see? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, SESTA, FOSTA, um, if for people that don't know what that is, I'll just put some links to it in the show notes, but you probably do if you listen to the show, but like that, that gutted some of the fun of going onto Craigslist. I mean, for me, Craigslist was always a great place to find hookups because a lot of the people that were on it were closeted men um, who were trying to sort of figure out whatever in their lives. And I liked those interactions with men that were going through that time in their life because it was always like I'd end up meeting people that were going through a process of discovery. And that was really exciting for me. I mean, everybody's always going through a process of discovery, but you see what I mean. And that space that provided that anonymity um, is, I mean, it's gone, that's gone. And I still like Craigslist for the reason why I like your website is that the design yeah. is still just very like it, it retains that feeling of that time of the internet. And, and for people who haven't gone to Joanne's website, it has this very GeoCities tripod look to it. And it's really cool. Like you're like, Hey, I remember this. At first you think you're encountering an error. Like when you go onto your site, like you think that somehow uh, there's been a problem or the website was not properly built and you're, and, and then you realize, no, this is actually evocative. And I really <laughs> like that. My website and same thing as Craigslist, it's just HTML. So if you yeah. use the basic code to get something on the web, it looks nostalgic because most people have designed so much, but I just want to get back to your point about meeting closeted men on Craigslist. Cause I find that fascinating because I really think Craigslist, just because you went to the main screen, you could see everything on it. Someone who's going to job listings, his eye, he catches his, the M for M. Ooh, I know that's there. Uh -huh, I'm, uh -huh. to, I'm here for jobs. I'm here to find my bike <laughs> or find a bike. But their eye keeps, oh, if mm -hmm. I wanted to go to M for M, I know where to go on the internet. And, you know, you have this experience of selling a bike and you know that nobody is going to see your name because you're anonymous because they have that Craigslist responder email. You know, that level of just being able to be so close to something else, mm. that was what was so cool about that site. Mm -hmm. Just that you could um, be there for a certain purpose and then dip into something else because I went, I actually did go on a lot of dates through Craigslist. Like it was, it, it sounds crazy now, but <laughs> it was because um, it, it, and most people were were there for the same. Like they had, they were just looking for an apartment and just stumbled upon it. And and it, it really, it was usually that serendipitous. It didn't feel as contrived mm -hmm. as a dating site. It felt way more, uh, 
well, who knows? Just hang out and uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So you're making me think about what you say before, like the what's behind door number two. That was there where the unpredictability of the other was present. But with certain sites and the, the feeling you get is the unpredictability of the self. Like, what am I going to do? What What's going to happen here? Where am I going to go? Who knows? You know, and that feeling now you know, one of the things that with Twitter is so infuriating is I, I think <laughs> I think people actually are objecting in part, and I think rightly so, to all the kind of social justice language stuff on Twitter, which uh, of course has been useful in some ways in the world, but they're objecting to it because it's predictability and repeat and repetition, almost more than the fact that they object to the like everything's been reduced to like algorithmic responses. And I think that's frustrating for people. I saw a great tweet the other night and I'll, I'll send you the link. It was someone was saying how we're having reruns even on Twitter. And they're like, really, is everyone outraged about Lena Dunham? Like this uh-huh. is it, 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 right now in June of 2020, are we really going to have a Lena Dunham day? Uh-huh. And it's like this, that's, Yes. We're just like, having reruns it's like we've done this already if i guess for a really regular (laughs) user they know how to like get upset in the way that they're used to it might be cathartic but yeah there is something about how twitter feels you can you see something happen and then two hours later it goes exactly where you expected Uh (laughs) (laughs) yeah how frustrating for a site that didn't that that presented so much you know, opportunity for interaction in the beginning and is run by, you know, this weird dude who's into like occulty witch stuff who, you know, seems still somehow better than all the other people that run, you know, their sites. Like I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily, I'm not going to sing Jack's praises, but he still seems better than everybody else, you know, (laughs) like. Something that I actually do believe as well was by working class and poor state school dropouts like uh-huh. it's very and i i hate to give them too much credit because of course they're cis white dudes they're and jack is certainly jack but that already kind of made it a little bit unusual among so mm-hmm. as a social media origin story um and i i think the reason that i can't step away from twitter the way that i can from facebook it's because I still love that freedom of just being able to enter in text and then having a text limit. And yes, they extended it, but there's still that sense of you're done. And okay, uh-huh. maybe you're doing a thread, but you're done. You're done. Put <laughs> up there. I mean, like the one of those kind of memes on Twitter, the, the send tweet, where it's just like when something has when something is so dumb, and they know that it's mm. dumb, and then you end it with send tweet. It's just I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because people have been like calling for the edit feature forever. And I'm like, no, that's the no. that would be the worst, right? Like, but um, yeah, so, you know, one of the things, <laughs> um, you know, I remembered also when reading your book was my old screen names and hotmail names and all that kind of stuff. Like I remember one of them was unwound kid at hotmail.com. And that was like a, an AOL or an AIM name too. And it was cause I liked the band unwound and I also like sidekicks and comic books, you know? So I was like unwound kid. And then everybody thought I was just like some <laughs> fucked up goth, you know, but like, 
I was thinking about that, that um, it wasn't anonymity. Like you were presenting something that you liked. You were putting some foot forward for your aesthetic, aesthetic, but it still was like a shield. And I think, you know, or, or, or a, a mask in some way, but it was a useful one. And I was thinking, okay, so you would have these kinds of impermanent identities that were linked to these code names or these alter ego superhero names on the internet or whatever. And now, like for, especially on Twitter, there seems to be this sense for a lot of people, this total permanence of identity. Like the thing that you said 10 years ago, which by, by the way, I just think this excavation of like, they said this 10 years ago, I mean, it's, it's kind of preposterous as much as, as much as it's nice to have somebody apologize for that. I think that that kind of thing is a little unconscionable, especially if someone has really shown that they're a different person in that amount of time, but that permanence of identity. And then also the tension of the people who have anonymous handles where they have like an anime, like Avi or like an American flag one or whatever, trolling the people for the permanence of their identities from, so there's this weird asymmetricality between the impermanent anonymous identities versus like the permanent identity that you can never get away from the thing that you said, if you were out there and you just put your face out there, you know? You know, it's funny, what, what you're saying is reminding me of, of my first blog, which was when I was in college. Um, and I put it up through PETA's, which was kind of like a, a like diary land. It was, it, it was more editable than live journal, but the archives were kind of weird. And once you put something in the archives, you just could not edit it again. Um, and it had been online up until maybe about five years ago, but finally I just asked to have it erased. Now, there's nothing on there that someone could have found. You know, maybe someone digging super, super hard could have found it. And I actually don't even know if there was anything objectionable in that blog. Mm-hmm. But I knew that because that period of time I was really finding myself, I was really deep in libertarian politics. So already, like, that stuff was creepy. <laughs> Um, but I, I find myself now now kind of regretting that I, I did this because I know that there were certain aesthetic choices that I made. There were certain times that I was like playing a character that I would do like almost like a short story because nobody was reading it other than me. Mm-hmm. Um, there Maybe there were a few lurkers that showed up, but I was doing it just for my own sense of playing around with the internet. And I do regret nuking those archives i i I should have known better but i really was so concerned with this idea of like my past it's possible i you know again the libertarian politics a lot of that could be taken out of context but i would hope that you know anyone who who would see it today would read it in the spirit of someone um thinking of it as like this is someone testing out, this is a teenager testing out her identity and testing out her interests and, and trying mm-hmm. things on and doing this in her own sense of, of privacy. Um, that's a little bit different from taking social media, old, excava- excavating old social media posts because that was for an audience. And many times you have to imagine, especially with these, main, these successful comedians, those kind of posts might have gotten them the job. I mean, maybe that's how they got in the writer's room, is writing stuff like that. So I do, I, 
I have mixed feelings about how much of a past we can um, we can judge. And I, I almost want to say like there was a line that I kept trying to work out for this book that I ended up cutting out constantly because I'm not sure I, I agree with it. But I was like, you know, if something's not on your credit report after seven years, then maybe we have to like maybe seven years is the limit. And that's and I was always writing some variation of that. Mm. but then I finally felt like well I don't necessarily know I don't I don't necessarily know that I can say this definitively because there's certain stuff that like you do have to contextualize if it does mean uh receiving power or or having um caused harm I mean I but these are complicated and they're situational and the internet is not good at seeing complicated <laughs> uh situational examples like this um and it's in the internet internet users as a group as a collective on twitter and facebook are not great at reading generously um and these are all things that as individuals we can try to do them so you you make this great point again and again of pointing out can we hold the sites and the people and institutions in power responsible at least as much as we hold the users responsible, but probably more because we are encouraged, you know, to have that kind of attitude like, Oh, you said this, you know, thing seven years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Matt Taibbi or whatever, am I saying his name right? But like you wrote this zine that was like terrible, you know, I get it. I mean, I get why people would see that and be upset. And yet, you know, the problems of what does it do to us to, what does it do? How do we feel about our own lives? What kind of state does it put us in if we're constantly doing that excavatory and then punishing work? And I think, you know, I mean, it's something I had to think about a lot just with doing porn, right? Because I knew, like, I started doing it right when it was like, okay, well, we have DVDs, but everything is kind of moving on to the internet. And I knew, I was like, okay, well, there's this weird permanentness of my identity being out there because porn is public facing sex work, you know, and you're doing other kinds of sex work too. And I don't think porn performers get enough credit for being public about the sex work that they do um, and, and pushing some, some conversations forward in that way. And then you have this name to shield you, your fake name, which is what my name is. I mean, my, my birth name is <laughs> not Connor Abib. I don't hide it, but I've, even my friends call me Connor now. But I thinking about those tensions of this is in the public eye forever. And that's kind of what I wanted. You know, I wanted to be like, this is here. It's never going away. And people have to deal with that when they meet me. But I don't think anybody was feeling ready for at any point entering the public sphere for everything that they'd ever said to never go away, you know? And so people had to face, you know, this sort of horn star dilemma without realizing that they were facing it. And that seems wrong to me. Another thing that, that I'm concerned about with this book is that, you know, are, are these platform, are these platforms driving us toward creating these situations that we can't like, we don't have these little pockets of privacy. We don't have, um, it's, I don't necessarily know that any platform should include all sorts of people. 
I don't, I, I have really mixed feelings about it because there have been benefits where, you know, someone who would never in a million years have seen the hashtag solidarity is for white women uh, all of a sudden is on Twitter and sees it and is like, has a spark and it's like, oh my gosh, that makes sense to me. That's a great thing to come out of Twitter. At same way that we were saying with, with, with Craigslist, that you go on Craigslist and you, you're there to buy a bike and then you all see I'm from and hmm, maybe this is something that I want to do. Um, that opportunity to have a lot of different options in front of you and, and futures that you had not perhaps believed were possible are, are the potential is there and very immediate and not at a great cost to you. But I also wonder about having all these people in on one platform bumping into each other. It feels like I always think in my mind is like when I'm on Twitter, I have like a, you know, I have, I have weird like sensory memories that certain platforms make me think of. And when I'm on Twitter, I feel like I'm in the bumper cars as a kid. Like I also feel like when, I, when I'm on the side, I have this like sense of being behind a little car as a nine-year-old. And I always just wanted to drive the little car because I was a nerd. I always just wanted to drive the car because I was nine years old. And it's my experience in a little car. But then other cars are just getting in your way and, and, and bumping into you. And it's disruptive. And it's, that's what Twitter feels like to me. Mm-hmm. So it's the sense of all of these activities. And that ultimately, it's not beneficial for us necessarily, but it's plenty beneficial for Twitter because they are capturing all this activity. They're able to sell ads against, they're able to create data profiles on their users. Um, and I wonder, um, I, I just wonder if we were building an ideal internet, would we have these mass platforms like Facebook or Twitter, or would they be so decentralized like Mastodon, which Mastodon has its problems, but Mastodon has uh, some interesting ideas around creating tiny communities inside of a larger, uh, a larger network. Uh-huh. And that's, so that's something that I, I think about is like when we have these scuffles, when we have these, these, these frustrated moments on the internet, or if it goes as planned, or like, that's almost the worst is when it's, when everything goes as planned, you see the bad tweet, enough people dunk on it then the end of the day this person is hugely embarrassed and everybody wins um when something like that happens uh it's twitter doing its job and it's the twitter users playing their roles in this system and you know it it is it is exhausting um and then again you know the opportunity to shoot to um, to some level of micro celebrity again without the the conditions of of the wealth or the status or the power that traditional celebrity would normally bring. You can, if, if you really really want to, you can make sure that everybody on Twitter has seen you. Uh-huh. you can, you can absolutely do that if you really, really want to. You can do. You can post something incredibly strange. You can just like you can manufacture a viral tweet very easily. It's just a matter of do you actually want this? What do you get out of it? What What is it worth? And that would be inflammatory, most likely. Like, I mean, that's what Milo basically got everybody to see him. You know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think you know you're pointing to 
so, you know, I've been on Twitter now for like, gosh, I mean, 10 years probably at this point. And uh, it's for me, it's almost 14 years, I think. Yeah. Okay. Right. So from, from, you know, close to the beginning of it. Right. Um, but I think, um, you know, and I really loved it, but I, but I realized more and more that it does less and less of what I wanted it to do and what I liked it doing. And so I'm right now just sort of revive, like I'm, I'm undergoing like a major change with what I'm actually going to do on the platform and li- limiting all sorts of things. Um, and and trying to make it do what I want it to do now, um, which will be actually less fun for me, but I think better for everybody else on there and for, for myself. <laughs> so everybody listening, when you notice the big change, this is where you heard it first. But, um, but part of that came from my growing awareness that Twitter's was acting more and more like capitalism. Like, so in other words, like, people would go on Twitter and some celebrity would do some terrible thing. And it wasn't enough that the celebrity did a terrible thing. And people were like, you know, like say this recent comedian, Chris D'Elia or whatever he was, you know, I forget, I don't even really know what happened with him exactly, but it was like, it's not that you just have to stand against what he did in your own community or your own life or try to have conversations about these kinds of things in your own life or sexual assault. But there was this, there was this extra component of everybody needs to be involved in the conversation about this. And they really need to care deeply about this specific instance instead of the overarching structure and how we deal with that and contend with problems of sexual violation and assault. And the reason why is because then there are stories for online journalists to write about mm-hmm. and then that feeds back into twitter and then some other celebrity comments on it the wrong quote unquote wrong way and then that creates more stories and people you know i mean if you notice more and more of those the, the, the tweets inserted into news stories right yeah. which i just find so bizarre that you can just become part of the news without you know, the reporter coming up to you on the street with a microphone and being like, would you like to comment on the trash fire? You know, like you don't get the option. You just get sort of lifted and, and, and dropped there. And so everything about Twitter now to me seems like it's my time on there being exploited to generate stories that feed Twitter, you know, more story generation so it just keeps like creating and creating this kind of content that's self-referential to Twitter. And it feels really claustrophobic now in a way that seems to not serve me. And that does seem like capitalism in a sense. It's like we make money to make more money. Like capital is about capital. It's just continuously generating for itself and it doesn't care about who's involved or entangled in it at all. And it feels rather unpleasant. So when you talk about the sensation, I wish it felt like bumper cars to me now. Mm-hmm. Like at least there's a fun part of that to me. <laughs> like to me, it feels like, I don't know, just being pushed off the edge of something every time I go on. Well, you know, our friend, Melissa Jira Grant, has a really good phrase for what you're talking about. And mm. she says, I, I want her to put it in a piece. Um, and I'm just going to quote her from like one of our <laughs> I'm like, you need to write about this. It's the way she puts it is by uh, uh, solidarity through rubbernecking. Um, <laughs> just a sense of that, mm. you know, the bystanders feeling like they're part of this 
movement because there's one example that everybody knows about. And uh -huh. I think about this in terms of how we do have that, uh, it's the imperfect elements of the Me Too scandals, these racist scandals coming out of, of various media companies. It's great that they're coming out publicly. Then a lot of times you'll notice that people who didn't necessarily help you when the eyes were not there, when the, mm -hmm. the people who did not help you on the ground in your office, when you reported something, um, have a lot to say about, say, uh, in this case, like Warren Ellis or something. And it's like, I, I found it incredibly frustrating um, most in the, this past month, seeing the, the, the people who have plenty to say about someone that they, they barely know, but are not actively working against these structures in their own communities. Um, this happens very commonly and it's because it's very easily to it's very easy to tweet something and tweet like there are no gray areas um when you have little involvement and you don't know the people and you don't know what support what supporting victims looks like you don't know what supporting a community in general looks like you have no sense of what is the restorative justice approach here you the the stakes are very low for someone to comment on that but when you are on the ground when there are muddled circumstances and it's a choice of like i'm having a party am i inviting both people this person mm. i know better this person feels uh harmed like what what like those kind of choices that we have as individuals uh the people who sometimes do not have the very sophisticated uh sophisticated analysis of these situations are sometimes the most vocal on, on Twitter because these are cases that they don't have to act as they, they aren't a participant. They're just a, a bystander. Uh-huh. And, and the other component of that, and you do point this out in your book as well, is like when someone does have the sophisticated analysis or whatever, a lot of times they're completely piled on, like on, on Twitter. Like I remember the, th the th probably the three times I've been had these like massive pylons on Twitter yeah. and it, the first two, at least um, the third one's still in development. It's like now shit that people just agree with. So like it was, you know, the first one was me saying something like, uh, you know, sex isn't supposed to be, isn't supposed to feel good. Like don't let somebody sell you that. And I, what I was trying to say was like, <laughs> for all the LGBT people that follow me and all the sex workers and all that, because that's who I thought was looking at what I tweeted yeah. was like, don't, you know, like don't, you know, don't worry if you're having these experiences and you're not loving every single one. Like yeah. sex is not, we don't have to be sex positive about everything, but that the weird combination of, Oh, well, like you're telling women to just lay back and take it there. Mm -hmm. So there were those people. And then the, you got no dick game, bro, like people. Yeah. And it was like thousands of people. And then the, the, and now people agree with that statement. And then the other one was like, you know, um, 
when Kevin, the Kevin Spacey stuff came out and I was just like, look, gay people have different ways of signaling consent to each other and we have a whole different history and it was like a thread and people were like, you rape apologists, blah, blah, blah. But now as the conservatization of like gay, you know, has been going on, people are like, oh, we need to reclaim like the radical sexual history of like gayness. And so a lot of those people, you know, and no, no apology is ever offered, you know, it's just like, you get piled on for saying things that might be a more, yeah, that are a more complicated or nuanced take of the politics that are playing out. And so it's not just that those people are loudest. It's also that they are actually like completely fighting against any sort of (laughs) more nuanced take. The last one was about the occult and socialism, but I don't expect that one to catch up anytime soon, but I know now if I have a pile on that it means in a few years people will agree with me. So I feel pretty confident. <laughs> about that. Sorry though. That that's the thing that I, I wish I could get through this because there are times that I, you know, just as recently as seven years ago, I would speak up about tech conferences that were only white guys, like uh-huh. only white guys on like a list of 10 people. And I might say something like, Hey, that's, that's not a good idea. And a lot of those people who were who were the most resistant to what I was saying um, nowadays, of course, they're very they, they're, they appear very much like white male allies on Twitter. But none of them have said to me, "Hey, you know, thanks for speaking up," because right. none of them have. And I I should by now know that apology isn't coming. But there have been times that I'm just like, those guys could have said something to me. <laughs> They can still say something to me, but instead they remember, they don't remember that I said something that they would, they would echo years later. They remember that I was going against the grain. They remember that I was difficult. Uh, totally totally and i you have a little bit about melissa again in your book where she said stuff about lean in and like all all these people that attacked her for it then like years later it's just like they're saying it as if it were their fucking idea and that that's really infuriating only because it doesn't come with any like yeah, reference to the people that were trampled on to get to their self growth. But it's fine. I don't really, and, and even that it's, you make such a great point there. It's like, I wouldn't even care if they didn't apologize. If the idea of me being the difficult wrong person were pulled out of it. It's, I, we, I, I think we should just start calling that the Sinead O'Connor effect because <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like she's, you know, this great public stage pre, pre-internet really like version of this, you know, where everybody got mad at her for tearing up the picture of the Pope. And then it's like years later, oops, sorry. And, you know, Madonna never apologized to her for making fun of her on Saturday Night Live a week later or whatever, you know. Um, but I think... Yeah. <laughs> so what it what it comes down to is like there's an exploitation of the content that we're putting on and it comes with a great risk to our feeling sometimes like our sense of feeling our emotional being when and we're being exploited by these platforms and you you at the same time and you have this line you know um I don't know the exact line, but you basically say the only solution to Facebook is for it to disappear and have nothing take its place, you know? And I think 
if we're thinking about solutions to this, that seems to be the most obvious one is we just kind of walk away. I mean, like I said, with Twitter, I'm going to change the way I engage with it. And I actually have some other friends who have big Twitter profiles that are doing the same thing around the same time. And I hope maybe that'll give something back to it. But is it, do we just turn our backs on some of these sites? Is it, <laughs> you know, what... <laughs> I'm sorry to sorry to do what everybody probably does to you now, which is like, what do we do, Joanne? But I do think it is the conversation that we need to have as well. A lot, all of us, you know. Well, the thing is, I, what I feel like I'm saying is incredibly obvious, but apparently I am the only one who's been saying this. <laughs> there will be like, there will be another piece in the New York Times of like, don't don't leave Facebook. Try to save Facebook, and uh-huh. I'll think. Uh, no, if you can leave Facebook, you should. Mm-hmm. But of course, I want to make it clear there are a lot of people who uh, cannot leave Facebook for a right. lot of different reasons, and these are usually related to like the lack of privilege to leave Facebook, which perhaps their um, their family um, uh, their their family only can access the internet through Facebook or perhaps their job re- requires them to be on Facebook. Plenty of reasons why someone cannot leave Facebook. And, and Twitter, can- Twitter, sorry to interject, Twitter for sure, like sex workers, uh, it's one of the only places where they can monetize a social media presence. Yeah. yeah. And Twitter also, if you have a media job, you have to be on Twitter. It's, mm-hmm. it's really messy. And it's something that, you know, one of those things that I, when I think about things that, what would I have done differently if I had known things would come out this way on Twitter, uh, one of the things I would have done differently is when I started a media job, I would have started a, an account for that media job. I would have kept Joe Mick. That's me, Joanne at Rhizome. Uh, Joanne Rhizome is my Rhizome account. Joanne Medium is my Medium account. Mm-hmm. My personality, they would not, I would I would be very ex- like explicit from the beginning that, when I take this job, you don't get my online identity. I really wish that had been something that early on we'd gotten the habit of doing. And and now people have like private accounts that are locked, but there's also the private account that's just not private, but public. And it is your personality. And it is your observations about going through the city, finding something interesting, taking photos of it, putting it on Twitter. That sense of when you work at a, as a journalist and, and you're, in, company does kind of own that element of your personality it's it's you don't want that 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 kind of um that kind of sense of of not being a free individual on these platforms is 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 not not a small thing but again people act like media on twitter even if they're not in media jobs so it's it's a little Mm -hmm. bit slippery there but yeah we we want opportunities to be able to walk away from these platforms if we can. But if your job depends on having that platform as in platform of fans and audience and having people find your work, that's where it gets really complicated. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting that you say that because I was thinking about how I, you know, in the beginning with Twitter, one of the best things about it, because I was doing porn and escorting was like, I have this, and I'm sure a lot of sex workers feel this way, tremendous opportunity to humanize myself, you know, and to 
be publicly integrated and be like, okay, here's a picture of my dick. And now here's me like talking about going to the store. Here's me talking about this book that I like. Here's a picture of my latest scene, you know, and that integration had only become possible through social media, but that is completely changed for me. now. <laughs> like it was like, there was this integration of personhood publicly. And that was a big part of my project. I don't think every sex worker has that project, but that was a big part of what I want to do was be like, you can be multiple and, and still be a coherent person, you know? So stop quarantining these parts of your life from each other. But now everything is sort of recondensed. And now it's like, um, it's, it's become again, sort of unpalatable because I know I'm feeding Twitter by my presence in a way that I don't like. The disappearance of Facebook and nothing takes its place, right? So we're not trying to fill that void, but we are still having experiences with the internet, I suppose. Like you're not a Luddite by any means. Um, so what does that look like? What are those feelings? What are those experiences? If you don't want to talk about the just sort of exoteric, these are what the sites look like. What does it feel like? I can only put this into like what the internet ideally would be for me. Um, if I can interpret your question like this, because I, I feel like if I could remake the internet, um, if this, if I had the potential to do this, number one, Facebook would be gone. Um, I don't know about Twitter. My like, Twitter actually like, let's, let's sit on this one. That's my problem <laughs> on the list. I think the, potential that wikipedia um offers is interesting i mean thinking of this as like the, the trouble is it is based on free labor but you know again in this if, if we already have this this ideal internet well let's just say we have a great social safety net as well and and we're all getting at least two thousand bucks a month from the government i don't know <laughs> So things like Wikipedia that um, if you have the time uh, to contribute and you see the value of contributing, it's like, ah, oh, this shared information, I want to do this. I want to I make sure that people have the best possible picture of information about these, these things that interest me. Uh, you're doing things related to habits. Um, opportunities to create art and and literature through the internet because I, I think the literature of the internet is still something that we talked about a little bit in, in our interview and I discussed a little bit in my book but I, I do feel that perhaps some of these exchanges on message boards in retrospect we would want to hold on to as like a great work of you know we, we, there are books of letters exchanged between authors mm. um, but certain message boards, certain Usenet groups had beautiful writing. And maybe the, these are things that we want to preserve as well. Um, the opportunity to create a space where people are adding beauty, adding their, their feelings, adding, adding this opportunity to connect. And that the, the language and the text is doing something other than just serving as a... As a um, as kind of news of the day, it's, it's actually a little bit, there, there is element of searching in, in this text that we would post to the internet that it would be testing out different 
ideas, like being expecting to be read generously, uh, communities that are that are genu- that are generally for the purpose of being communities. And these are all the things that I, I wish to find ways to recover. And I, I found, you know, I, I think the, the platform elements, like I said, we, we could go to Mastodon. It's, it's not easy to run your own instance. I mean, there, there's Darius Kazemi has a website called Run Your Own Social that gets into the nitty gritty of the time commitment and the cost of doing this. And it's not small to have to run something. But if we really wanted to recapture that, which I do, and my book has been out for you know, a few months now, and I, I'm still looking for ways to find that internet that I wrote about mm. uh, as a past internet. I'm still looking for ways to kind of have those experiences again. And it is really just the reading generously, posting with a uh, lack of hesitancy, the the sense of being very open with people and expecting to be received with generosity. Um, these these elements that I want to recover. Yeah, it's really. I mean, first of all, that's that is beautiful, which is not something that I think of in terms of the internet. But I mean, part of it is because you're talking about the inner experience, which is again what your book really does, and what yeah. why that book is so needed. But I think, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, one of the things I think about in terms of like the proliferation of pornography online is like, we have this archive of desire, like this tremendous archive of desire that we have never had before, you know, and we can see how it shifts and changes and how it changes the people that respond to it and how, you know, the people that are responding to it are changing it and all that kind of stuff. And I think that that's really really beautiful and exciting and you know i've deleted all my tweets from before a certain time and in some part of me wishes i hadn't done that i've archived you know a lot of them but part of part of what we need in relation to these massive archives whether it's twitter or porn or whatever is some the figure that keeps coming up in your book which is the librarian like there aren't any librarians on the internet you know, and you need, well, I mean, there are librarians on the internet, but you know what I mean? Like, it seems like there needs to be these, at first, um, and like, this is like Hart and Negri, like, talk about this politically, is like, you have these short-term, you know, figures who do the organizing and some of the work, and they're these leaders, but their purpose is always to dissolve themselves back into, like, the collective action. And so then you have, it, it running like Wikipedia runs in a sense. And obviously Wikipedia also has its problems, but none of it's not going to have its problems, you know, but having people that actually know how to go into these spaces or whatever we want to call them and just sort of survey what's going on and begin to help people direct towards information, be able to answer questions, be able to interpret it. And, um, I mean, for better or for worse, for you, you're actually one of those people, <laughs> you know? So I think, and you do, a, you do a really great job with surveying the internet 
in in its entirety uh, in this book, which is no small task, but it's because you locate it in the experience of who's looking upon it and who's using it. And I think that that's a great public service in and of itself. So thank you for writing the book. (laughs) Thank you for reading it as you have, which is as I hoped it would be read. All right, everybody. Well, I think that's it. Let's, we'll definitely continue and have another conversation sometime soon. But, uh, always love to talk about. I always love to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening.